fell right down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right Hey, Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Paul Heather Dog Ninja Hey guys, welcome to episode 301 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Alright Tracy, so we got some stuff to talk about tonight, but obviously first, before we get into uh, some semantics and what have you, we want to thank all of our allied military men and women and all of our civil servants, no matter which country you represent, thank you for all that you do. Now I want to add to that... We actually, you remember one time before somebody said, hey, how can you say no matter which country you represent because you've got a lot of places like Russia where the military are not good people. And as I, we've explained on the show before, we basically are talking about, you know, those people aren't listening to the show. No offense, but there's nobody you know, on Iran unless they're our military service members. They're not listening to the show. So I've never really thought much of it. So we're not saying, hey congrats to the Russians who do bad stuff or whatever. That's never been the case. But we have explained that before. Somebody, actually, uh, one of our former uh, military, eight years in the service, suggested uh, that we say our allied. And that basically, I don't know why, I never thought of that before. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what we're going to start doing. So I want to give Mickey credit for bringing that up. So from this point on, it would be our allied militaries no matter which country you represent absolutely we love you guys so much we pray for you every day thank you for watching over us and keeping us safe all right so also you know there's a lot of things going on in the world there's a lot of uh, hectic things going on in people's lives and uh, that causes people sometimes to struggle with their mental health we just want to let everybody know that you have a place to turn if you need to talk to somebody we are available to you. Our group is available to you. If you're not a member and you want some support, I would highly suggest that you join it. It is a private group and there's almost 5,500 people now. And there's always somebody to make you feel better if you need words of encouragement. All the time. And we are so blessed and grateful for you guys in our group to do that. And if you would rather call the 800 number, it's 273-8255. You can text them at 741-741, and we always tell you, you can call Jerry or I. It doesn't matter. You know, give us a call. We'll give you our phone numbers if you need it, and just please reach out. We all love you, and we're all here for you. All right, so before we get into tonight's episode, we're going to be as transparent as possible. Uh, We've had some changes taking place in the show, so we are moving Hillbilly Horror Stories to another uh, podcasting host. With that being said, it will not make a bit of difference to most of you out there. It's, you're not going to change anything. You just listen the way you always listen. Right. Shouldn't make a, a bit of difference. But with that being said, 
there was a lot of work that goes in on our end on getting episodes ready to move over. We've had to go through 700 episodes and take out any old commercials that were in there, all of that. And it has really been time-consuming this week. Therefore, I did not have the opportunity to put a new episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories out for this week. What we are going to do, though, is play, as we've done in the past, a Patreon episode. It was a bonus episode on Carroll College. This originally came out last August. And uh, I think it's a very good episode. It's probably going to be the equivalent of what you're used to hearing on here because we put as much effort into those as we do the regular episodes. With that being said, if you are a Patreon subscriber and you've heard this story, uh, maybe you would want to hear it again. But if you don't, skip forward because we've got Rick Relison, and he is a Bigfoot hunter extraordinaire. He's been doing this for 12 or 13 years. He leads expeditions out there for the BFRO, and he was absolutely fascinating to talk to. This is about an hour and I think 10 or 15 minute interview that goes up. And like I said, we've had some previous uh, Bigfoot experts on the show. And this was this is one that will stand out to you out of all the yeah. ones we've had on it. It will kind of stand out. Super fun. Can't wait to have him on again. How and exciting would that be to be doing a... Yeah. I mean, he just got back from, uh, I think, the Blue Ridge Mountains in, mm-hmm. in uh, I think it was Georgia or South Carolina. I'm sorry, South Carolina doing an expedition. We talk a little bit about that and... Yeah, it's it's really cool. So anyway, you guys will definitely like hearing that. So you got both of those going on tonight. We do want to give a a um, our condolences to Sharon Murdoch. Uh, she lost her father, and um, uh, we knew he's been sick for for a while. And you know, obviously, he had all of our thoughts and prayers and positive energy. And uh, but with his passing, Sharon is a longtime listener. And we wanted to let her know that we were thinking about her. And Absolutely. Her Hugs to you, sweetheart. I know it's tough. Been there myself. And, you know, just cherish your good memories. And your daddy will be with you always. All right. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into this episode on Carroll College. And then uh, we'll be back with the Patreons and stuff as usual. And then um, we will get into Rick Rellis's interview that you guys are going to absolutely love. Hey guys, welcome to the August edition of the Patreon bonus episode. Hi guys. Once again, we want to say at the beginning, we always say it at the end, but thanks for everything you guys do for us. We greatly appreciate all the hard-earned money that you throw our way every single month. Yes, we do. means the world to us and we appreciate you guys so much. Yeah, we Trust me when I tell you, you guys are a top priority. Whenever we miss a short and have to make it up the next day or so, it, it literally kills our soul. Uh-huh. And like these episodes, we've never been late on. So this is three over three years of doing these, and we've never missed one yet. It's always been on time. No matter what we got to do, those things get put out on time. That's what he said. <laughs> I don't know. We do try our best, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I thought for this show, I was kind of looking back. I told you on the last regular episode we did that I'm trying to find some subjects or states or cities or something we haven't done a whole lot on mm-hmm. it's like tomorrow night's regular show we are going to be doing a lighthouse we've only done like two of those and all the stories that we've done over 200 stories we've done two lighthouses mm-hmm. so we're doing a lighthouse tomorrow night and it's one you probably haven't heard of well so, well in your case you haven't heard of any well, of them. Shoot, you know me 
You probably haven't heard of St. Augustine, and we were there. I'm wearing the shirt (laughs) (laughs) as we speak. Uh, Hello. I do remember that. (laughs) But we did that one, and we did one in Canada. Turd. And that's the only two that we've done. Anyways, well, and then we did one on here as a bonus episode one time. So, or no, it wasn't on here. I think it was when we did the uh, midweek episode. It was like a short one. So I think so, yeah. But anyway, we've only done three out of like thousands of stories that we've done. That sounds funny in itself. <laughs> it does. So we're doing uh, cemeteries coming up. And like I said, last week we did Yellowstone. So we hadn't done a national park before. On this episode, we're going to do a college but it's a college in Montana. And I don't think we've done a story in Montana. I know we haven't done one on the main show. And I think we might have done a short on maybe yeah. Bannock City, which is a haunted uh, uh, ghost town ghost up town, in Montana. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't think we've done a regular story for Montana. So I got one tonight. I would love to go there. Montana? Yeah. It's the big sky. It is. I think that's where uh, Alexis and Chris went that time on their vacation it does seem like they went to and Montana. they had rented some guys just like rented out his cabin or like a house or a little house he even came with a real dog <laughs> i remember that I remember? yeah they had a dog that, that lived there at the, <laughs> they rented the cabin and already had a dog there. yeah it was really nice very peaceful and they showed where they was able to ride bikes out there and stuff and yeah it does look like it'd be fun yeah it does definitely and it looks like it'd be cold in the winter time without that, a doubt that's true that's nothing I'm, a good good fire can't settle you know well i don't know about that i know i know some of them states up north the dakotas and montana i have no desire to go to if it's anywhere close to the winter time that's, <laughs> that's a summertime destination only yeah i can see that all right so what we're going to talk about tonight is a hunt college i said hon hon college <laughs> let's try that again it's a haunted college in the capital of Montana, Carroll College in Helena. Helena? I don't know if it's Helena or Helena. I've heard it both ways. Oh, I, I believe say. it's I believe it's actually Helena. Really? Helena I, sounds way better. Well, it might and I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but it's okay. Well, I'm going to call it Helena and if I'm wrong somebody can correct me. Okay, so we took a quick break and we looked up the pronunciation and we heard it pronounced three different ways and we even went to a Montana website and it said Basically, the people outside of Montana pronounce it Helena or Helena, but inside the state, it's Helena. So, I still don't 100% know. But we did our due diligence. Let's call it the Big H. (laughs) All right. Most colleges have the same kind of rumors or urban legends. You've heard them all before. Of course. It's always a student that committed suicide or something like that. So most of the ones in Carroll College do at least have some type of factual uh, evidence. To back it up. To back it up, yeah. The first one we're going to discuss is that of a gentleman by the name of Matthew Kelly. Now, that's not his real name. Okay. They uh, they used a pseudonym on it. But he was a student in the 1960s, and he had been at a party that night. And after arriving back at the dorm, he had been drinking, and he went to the bathroom. While he was in the bathroom, which is currently blocked off, by the way, he fell and he hit his head on the sink. Well, shoot. This caused a severe cerebral hemorrhage and it caused his death. Oh, my goodness. Just because probably somebody missed the urinal and he slipped and pee. Or because he was drunk. And that happened, too. (laughs) I don't even know if they had a urinal. Did they have urinals in the 60s? Oh, I'm sure they did. 
I don't know. This caused David Miller, who's now a high school teacher in Helena, he went to school with Matthew some time ago. Of course, this was in the 60s, so mm-hmm. this was a while ago. He said they weren't really close friends, but they did play on the same football team together, and he did verify the story that that did actually happen. He said he was a pretty nice guy and that uh, the death kind of shocked and saddened everybody on the, on the campus oh, at the sure. time. The rumor here, though, is that the sink has blood splatter and bloody handprints that cannot be removed. David said that the ghost stories kind of started uh, when Matthew had, had died, but it was still a couple of years later. And he had already graduated by the time right. that this happened. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't around when the ghost story started, but he did start hearing it because once been, again, being a high school teacher, he's got a lot of students that moved on to that college. Mm-hmm. He said that it was usually students that were reporting knockings on the doors and then when they would go to answer it, nobody was there. But then it started being follows, followed by the stories of the of the bloody handprints and stuff that maintenance crews would try to scrub off, but couldn't quite get it to stay away, and it would return. They would come back. Must have not been no Mr. Clean back in the day. Right. Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. <laughs> so the story's been popular all over campus for almost 40 years now, when you think wow. about it. Margaret Hoagland, she worked in the maintenance crew there from 1983 to 1991, and she said that the first thing that incoming freshmen always wanted to do when they got on campus was go see the bathroom with the bloody, uh, the blood-stained mm-hmm. sink. And the fact is that that area has been blocked off for years, so it really wasn't something they were able to take people back to. Oh. So, I mean, I mean they could... Because they're using it as a storage room. But we'll get to a little bit about that. Pete Ruzovich, he was a student there, but he also worked on the maintenance crew. And he said that as soon as they would get you know hired on the crew, they all want to go over and take a look at it. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't show any of the, the new guys the bathroom. It's just like, yeah, you got to earn your way in or something. Oh, yeah. So eventually, after asking several times, one of the members of the maintenance crew decided to take Pete up there. And he said it was only after they took several days to really build up the expectation. You know, so they were like, oh, wait do you see it. Oh, you're not going to believe your eyes. And so they kept doing that every day, and then eventually they let him go see it. So they kind of teased him a little bit. Pete said he saw what everyone had been talking about. It looked like dried blood splattered all over the sink. He thought it was strange that nobody had cleaned it up. He then heard that someone committed suicide in there. So he didn't know the, the whole story mm-hmm. of of Matthew. He just knew that he thought somebody committed suicide in there. So the story of the sink was there, but not necessarily the story of what really happened. If it wasn't blood there, then he said somebody did a pretty damn convincing job of making it look like blood. Mm-hmm. Well... We talked about Margaret Hoagland, and she says that's exactly what happened. She said that Pete was really on to something because that was not blood stains on there. She said uh, that not long after Matthew had passed away, mm-hmm. that some pranksters got in there and they used red paint. And they did that to the sink. And then when they tried to take the paint off, the paint wouldn't completely come off. So that's what you got. 
So she's saying it's not real blood. It was just paint to begin with. She also said that the reason that the, you know, the bathroom was blocked off, which obviously adds to the mystique of not only is there blood in it, but the bathroom is blocked off so nobody can go see. But she said the reason it's blocked off is because it was just really became outdated and it needed to be renovated. And it was going to cost so much to renovate it. They instead just turned it into a storage room. So no excitement there. Not according to her anyway. She said, though, just because she doesn't necessarily believe in the handprint story doesn't mean that there's not some weird stuff going on that she does believe in there. She said, for example, there was a female cafeteria worker. She saw a ghost one Sunday morning when she was serving breakfast to the priests. Now, I didn't mention this before. Probably should have since I started bringing up priests now. This college is is a private Roman Catholic college. So that's why there's priests in there. But she said it was during the summertime. And she was sitting there having coffee, and she saw an apparition. No one exactly knows who the apparition was, but this lady said she knows for a fact she saw one, and this was before anybody had ever told her that the college was haunted. So she had no clue about hauntings or anything when she started work there. This was the first instance that she that had. That has come up for Yeah, her. so it wasn't like somebody plant, you know, put these things in her head. Wonder what but, kind of what wonder what kind of stuff they were dressed in, like attire. Oh, I don't know. Say? I don't know. She didn't say anything about what the apparition looked like. She yeah, she saw an apparition, but she did see one. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Margaret said the only experience that she had wasn't really paranormal, but it was odd. She said that there were a couple of students that were unfortunately killed in a car accident on from campus, and she said that. It's just for about a two-week period afterwards, she said just everything in in the entire college just seemed like it was a negative energy and just really seemed kind of down. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could imagine that if everybody's kind of in mourning somewhat. Oh, yeah, that, that, that could probably, be that, what that is, yeah. yeah. So That's sad. Now, most of the other ghost stories at Carroll College involve... Uh, other types of tragic events that happened uh, or took place there at on the campus over the course of, of several years. Unlike Matthew's death, though, some of these haven't really been documented. So some of them are just kind of, you know, secondhand, we think. Matthew's, everybody knows. But some of these are just kind of kind of out there for people to speculate on. One story talks about someone that killed himself by jumping from a window. And then there's other versions of the story that says he actually jumped from the top floor of the north stairwell of the St. Charles Hall. No matter which version is right, we do know that the windows have since been boarded up to make uh, sure that that doesn't happen up on that window where it could have happened oh, up on the yeah. top floors. Yeah. Really sad that someone would do that. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Now, even though the windows have been boarded up so that can't happen again people still say that you can see and hear a man falling from that window Mm. there's also a story about another man who fell down a flight of steps between the floors and he he possibly passed away also so i don't know if that's a haunting that goes on but they do say that you can hear a wailing in the stairwells from that person who fell Mm. how scary is that it's pretty scary you imagine being like in a stairwell all by yourself. You're walking down, and, and then it's, you hear a bump, bump, bump. Oh, <laughs> that's 
probably not what you would hear, but I'm sure that could. That's gonna leave a mark. <laughs> <laughs> like Tommy Boy. Yeah. No, I cannot imagine that. That would be so horrifying. Now, as far as the person who jumped from the building, most people believe that was a student, but there is a large part of employees, past and present, who believe that it was actually a priest who committed suicide. But oh, Don't you know that's not good to do? Well, they also think that people could be getting their stories combined. You know, over the course of years, sometimes people get stories mixed up and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, for example... Uh, there's a story about a priest who reportedly fell and died after hitting his head in St. Albert Hall. So you could see how some people could get that mixed up with yeah. Matthew's story since they're similar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you could just be getting combined there. There's another story about a nun that she became very ill and died on the top floor of the St. Albert's Hall in the 1930s. Ed Noonan. He's a uh, former director of St. Charles Hall. He said he's very familiar with the tales involving the Phantom Sister. Students sometimes sense that she's with them or they'll catch a glimpse of her. There's a former student by the name of Catherine O'Connell. She wonders if the nun visited her friend's room in St. Albert's Hall. She said that they never actually saw the figure. And and she didn't show up every night. Mm -hmm. But... When the nights she did come, it was always at the exact same time of night. See so, that? I think that would be... I would like that. Well, wait till you hear the rest of it. Maybe you won't. Oh, no. So sometimes her and her friend would be sitting in the bed, and they would just wait for her, because they knew what time she was coming. So they would hear footsteps coming up and down the hall. Then, the handle to their room, on the door in their room, would Jiggled. turn. Mm-hmm. She said it would never open, but it would turn. Then after the door handle would turn, they would hear footsteps across the wooden floor, and then they could feel the presence of someone standing at the window. So think about this. You're you're in the room. You're sitting on the bed. You see your door handle jiggle after you've heard footsteps come up. Mm-hmm. It's a wooden floor inside. So it's like, the handle jiggle, but it's like she came through the door, because then they hear footsteps on the wooden floor, and then it's like they can feel somebody over by the window of the room. So it's like she came in, mm. but they didn't see her come in. Was it one of these places where the people had to be in at a certain time of night? Oh, curfew or something? Yeah. I don't know. Because I don't even know what time this was. This could have been 7 o'clock for all I know. So after a few minutes, they would hear her going back to the door and walking down the hallway again. Even though they never actually saw the apparition, they felt as if they knew this was a spirit of a female. Oh, they should have said something. Well, they might have said something. I would have. St. Halbert's Hall, where this happened at, is now a student union, but they say the ghostly nun still walks up and down the halls. Aaron Hagens, he said that he's heard her. He said it was about 2 a.m. in the morning. He was helping a young lady close the place up. She said it was just the two of them there. And they had made sure that the doors upstairs were completely locked already. Mm-hmm. So now they're standing down in the kitchen. And they're at the far end of the building. That's when they heard someone walking around on the floors above them. So the young lady decides that she's going to go up there to check it out. Good job, Andrew. Let the lady go. Mm. Well, I can't say nothing. This is the 21st century. And 
women are allowed to do that kind of stuff. That's just how you made me go into the Sally house before you. Did I? Mm-hmm. When did we do that? When we first got there. you talking about when we're both standing by the door and you just made the first step in? No. No, I went in before you even came in. Oh, was that was that on the street or something? Yeah, you wouldn't. You didn't want to come in yet. You were scared. I was not scared. <laughs> I'm sure I was getting something out of the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it's what you say? That's what I was doing. We had blankets and stuff in there. I had mm-hmm. to get in the bed and all that. Anyways, there was five thousand people in that house when we got there. I don't think it was that big of a deal. Anyways, so. They're standing in the kitchen. They hear these noises over, over top of them. The young lady, she goes up there to check it out. And, you know, they want to make sure they didn't accidentally lock somebody in. She gets there. She unlocks the door. Absolutely no way there. So she gets back down. Her and Aaron, so they uh, start locking up again. Just as they uh, start getting to the other end of the kitchen, they hear footsteps above them again. So they begin walking towards the door. They hear the footsteps start walking in the opposite direction. So they finished up. They locked up and they got the heck out of there. Hmm. Best they could. Students and staff have reported other unworldly beings at the college, such as the invisible priest. They said that he strolls up and down the hallway tapping his cane. I don't know how they would know that's a priest, but. Yeah, I don't know neither. Others report an entity that likes to come sit on top of beds. There was one female student that said she woke up to the sound of her voice calling her name. It was her best friend's voice. She knew it. Mm-hmm. And she kept calling, Julie, Julie. She said the voice kept calling all the way down the hall. But when she got to her friend's room, her friend was not there. And then when she asked her friend about it later, her friend said she had no clue she was talking about it, And she wasn't even in the building at that time. How about that? Yeah. That's then you've got Deborah Dakar. She said that when she was at the campus, she lived in the St. Charles Hall, and that a lot of girls had experiences that uh, she thought to herself were just kind of freaky type things. Mm-hmm. Things like we've already talked about. And she said she eventually had a ghostly encounter herself in one of the bathrooms. She said it was exactly midnight. She was sitting in one of the bathroom stalls. So she pooping? heard, huh? Was she pooping? I don't know. I don't know how regular she was. Maybe she poops every night at midnight. <laughs> so, anyways, she's sitting in there on the on the stall. She hears the main door to the bathroom swing open. She said she didn't hear any footsteps. She kind of looked down toward the bottom of the stall to see if she could see any feet coming in. Mm-hmm. She said she heard the the door to the stall next to hers open. She said she could feel the presence of somebody there, but she could plainly see that there was no person visible that entered the stall, at least not one that had feet or other visible body parts. <laughs> she said then the toilet in that stall flushed. Deborah said she jumped off off the toilet and she ran and rushed out of the bathroom. <laughs> so she never believed in ghosts before this, uh, but now her little experience at Carroll College definitely made a believer out of her. Well, I mean, at least she was courteous and flushed the toilet. Ain't nothing worse than ghost stink. <laughs> right. <A> ghost herd. <laughs> as annoying as most of these ghosts seem to be, usually they don't play the role of troublemaker. 
According to Ed Noonan, he recalls sensing a presence in the old Charles Hall whenever a student living there had some kind of serious problems going on. He said it was almost as if a spirit was looking out for the student body. And he kind of he felt like they were always being watched over. So that was a positive. Well, yeah. One girl said she was sick with the flu, and she felt someone in the room keeping her company, even though her door had been completely locked and no one could have come in. She said it wasn't frightening to her at all. As a matter of fact, she was comforted by the presence. No, that's really nice. Aaron Hagens talked about him a little bit earlier. He said he believes that the entire college is protected by someone. As proof, he brings up the fact that there was a train wreck that occurred near campus a few years earlier. So the brakes gave way on a train. It rode backwards for miles. And it stopped finally and wrecked and derailed just as it got to the college. Wow. The building themselves basically had received substantial damage, he said. And windows were blown out all over the campus. And not to mention the fact that the temperature that day was zero degrees, so that just added to it. Now you got all these mm-hmm. windows blown out with it being below My zero. Goodness. But not a single person was injured, and Hagen says he considers that to be a miracle. Sounds like. So while many kind of uh, associates with the college agree with Aaron Hagen's that this unseen presences do live there, and they are looking over, not everyone is a believer. One of the administrators said that his opinion is the term true and ghost story um, were just a lot of bunk, in his opinion. <laughs> he didn't believe in any of it. But students in the... But did he believe in angels? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Well, duh. I didn't get to do a personal interview with him. Students in the dorms, though, especially at nighttime, uh, they believe otherwise. So anyways, that's our little story. Well, that is really nice that they are being looked over. That's, I mean, that's such a comforting feeling. I, I would dig that. You know what else I'd dig? What? A grave? No. You could, though. If you would go downstairs and get me something to drink. Okay. Because I'm like spitting cotton. It has nothing to do with this podcast, but yeah. Would you do that for me? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I love you, honey. I love you too, babe. And we love all of you. Thank you so much for joining in and letting us tell you about a Montana ghost story. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, all right, guys. We love you all. We do love you all. And since we'll tell you first here, next Friday night, will be the four-year anniversary of the podcast. Oh, my gosh. That's hard to believe. And we're going to do a very quick Facebook Live to show everybody the new podcast studio. No. <laughs> so we're keeping it completely private until then. And that will also be Kevin Tuttle's birthday. Yes. And, we love um, you, Kevin. You know, Kevin was one of the reasons that we started. His birthday was the reason we started on the 21st. Mm-hmm. So. Exactly. All right, guys. Who knows? Maybe Kevin will make some type of appearance, as he usually does. That would be amazing. We'd love to hear from you, babe. All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, guys. And again, if you guys are not Patreon supporters, we do a couple of full-length bonus episodes every month. We do a listener stories episode on the 1st, and we do a full-length episode such as that one on the 15th. And uh, for $5 a month, you get both of those plus a bunch of the shorts that we Mm -hmm. do. Tracy, I would say we do a good job of letting our listeners know about the best podcasts out there that they would truly like. I agree. And I think our reputation is impeccable when it comes to that. I think you're right. Well, with that being said, if you're not already listening to The Box of Oddities, you should be. Definitely. Remember, we listened on the way home from... Whispers of State. Yeah, Whispers of State, because we had about a three-hour long drive home, and we just started listening. And I'm telling you, Kat and Jethro 
are just like us in a lot of ways. I mean, they're a husband and wife team, so they get that great chemistry. Right. And they talk about eh, sometimes spooky stuff, just odd stuff, strange stuff. You name it. If it's strange, bizarre, but it's always hilarious. Wouldn't you say? I agree with you 100%. But you don't have to take our word for it because the Boston Magazine said Cat and Jethro ring humor from bizarre, macabre, and perplexing places. Look at that. Jimmy Kimmel from <gasps> ABC TV said, Should you be the type who has interest in weird stuff, this is a fun thing to allow in your head. That is amazing. How cool is it to get a comment from Jimmy uh, Kimmel? That is really great. And Slogo from Sirius XM Lithium. Truth is stranger than fiction, and a box of oddities is the strangest of them all. I remember we were listening to uh, the episode, would have never had any clue. But apparently, back in the day of TB and consumption, it was like if you looked sick, that was like a fashion state. Really? That's what you wanted to look like. So it was like, even though people were dying, it was like, hey, you're dying, but hell, you look good. Yeah. <laughs> because that was the thing going on. So yeah. it was crazy. And I remember, the, the I thought the funniest part, they were talking about... All these different medical conditions and stuff that people would use as fashion statements. And they were talking about the Queen of England back in the early, early days. The Queen was one of the few people in, in the country that could afford sugar. Therefore, her teeth would rot. Oh, wow. And people, like poor people, would take like soot and try to black out their teeth. Because it was a fashion statement. Because if the Queen had bad teeth, oh, then that's, you that's wanted the to thing have to bad do. teeth. Right. Absolutely crazy. That is really interesting. Box of Oddities, what I, another thing that I like, they have really built a community. It's a community for those who enjoy the stranger side of life. Good for them. So that's right up our alley. I always think it's funny, that, and I tell people this all the time, it's a podcast with heart and sometimes intros. So <laughs> <laughs> if you like our kind of stories on Hillbilly Horror Stories, you're definitely going to like their stories. And then they have a, a lot wider range. Because like I said, they yes. do a lot more bizarre and stuff like that. Like the stories that we were just talking about. I think you definitely need to check into it. You're going to absolutely love them. And live events, you know, we do our share of live events. They sell out comedy clubs. Oh, I believe it. And they just got back. I was talking to Jethro a couple of weeks ago. They had just gotten back off of a tour that they were doing. Not Hopefully even, one yeah. day well, we're at the level yeah. that they are. And how can they do that? 16 million downloads since 2018 when they started. Wow. Well, that tells you something right there. Absolutely. So, guys, go check out Jethro and Cat. You're going to absolutely love them. They are on Spotify, Apple, you name it. If you're listening to this podcast somewhere, you can find them on there. Go find them. Subscribe today. Tell them that Hillbilly Horror Stories sent you when you leave them a review because you're going to want to. And you can go to boxofoddities.com and get more. My favorite thing I forgot. Mm Mm-hmm. When you're listening to their show, they will often bring up, like if something strange happens in your life, uh-huh. they call it the boo effect, B-O-O, box of oddities. I love it. How clever. So they're constantly having people talking about strange things that happen that they chalk up to the boo effect. That's amazing. I'm so happy for them. Go check them out. You're going to be glad you did. Tracy, obviously the Louisville event was awesome. It was. Packed house. We had had a great time. Everybody was so awesome. And we appreciate it. On to the next. Next live show, July 16th, Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. That's going to be with the guys from Middle Ages and Creeped Out mm-hmm. and The Tragedy of Cinema. And I know I was talking to James from Tragedy of Cinema the other day, and they're going to pick a story that's horror-related. Awesome. So it fits right in. And, of course, uh, Todd, Sean, and, and the, the gang are going to do a – they do creepy stories all the time. Right. That's what they do. It should be a really – fun show yeah. and this will be one of the cleaner shows uh, obviously with um, 
Brohio adds a certain level of creativity to the <laughs> events that we'll say, the adult creativity. And uh, Justin uh, has a little bit of a potty mouth at times. So I know that's hard to believe for some of you out there. So those shows aren't as family friendly. This show will be 100% family friendly. Yeah, absolutely. Bring the kids. Yeah. I don't know if we can bring the kids because it's at the VFW. I don't know if they have oh. an age limit. But it might be, I think it's 18. But I'm just saying, if you if you are uh, not a fan of profanity, this is going to be a good show for you because all the shows are going to be clean. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. Get your tickets, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. They're only 20 bucks a piece. And this this location only seats, I think, 60 people. So. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And I, and just for the record, um, Middle Aged and Creeped Out and uh, Tragedy of Cinema are both in the Indianapolis area. So it will probably sell out because they're going to have friends and family members. So oh, if you're awesome. thinking about getting a ticket... Get your ticket now. Like yeah. I said, it's a couple bucks cheaper than our regular tickets, mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, come and support and just have a nice day with us. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, what do you got as far as iTunes reviews this week? All right, I have Yvonne B., Mojo Lobster, Pamela Gamela, Officer Glenn, and his canine Gaza. That's what we always think the That's the exactly right. Are. B.L. Shepard and his son, which just came to a show. Greg H., thank you for your new review. We talked about you earlier. We really appreciate it. Our Patreon this week is Megan Manahan. Thank you, sweetheart, for your support. We love you guys so much and appreciate y'all taking the time out of your day to write us a review. You guys are awesome. Oh, and I wanted to mention real quick, Tracy, we had a blast last week. We got to record with uh, Zevin Odelberg with Kind of Murdery Podcast. Of course, he's a friend of the show. Yes, it was so much fun doing it, too. Because normally it's just me on a lot of these things. Cause, and we got to both be on this one, so that's extra fun. We've yeah. had very few where we got to do them together. I know. I don't I don't know why I'm not in on more of them. Uh, I usually blackball you and don't allow you on the shows. <laughs> so, <laughs> But no, right. we, we wanted to thank Zevin for having us on the show and... You know, we've talked about it at length on here several times before. Kinda murdery, K-I-N-D-A, murdery. And uh, Zevin is a good friend, and he's been, you know, more than supportive of our show. And a lot of the other podcasters have now uh, become friends with him. I know he's, you know, had so many other podcasters on his show and vice versa. So I love to see everybody helping each other out like that. Oh, absolutely. He's a cool guy, too. Y'all need to give him a listen. Yeah, typical Californian. He's got that, you know, the great hair and the, the <laughs> tan know? and all. <laughs> <laughs> he does have that. But yeah, uh, go listen to it. That's the episode we were on last week. But uh, you'll see it on there. Just listen to all the episodes. That way you're sure to not miss it. Absolutely. So. Check it out. All right. I've put it off long enough. Let's listen to Rick Rellis. All right. Hey, guys. I know you're always asking, why don't we do more cryptids? We do some on occasion, and uh, we've had some good uh, cryptozoologists on. Today, I've got Rick Rellis on. He is actually a uh, BFRO investigator. And uh, for those of you who uh, aren't in the know, that's a Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. That is the creme de la creme out there when it comes to Bigfoot research. And that's pretty much who everybody refers to. And he lives up in North Carolina right now been you know doing this for 12 years as far as researching and he leads expeditions all over the country and just got back from one uh, matter of fact we tried to set this up last uh, couple weeks and he was out going to be out of town in the blue ridge mountains up in south carolina leading an expedition uh tons of stuff we're going to get into as we go with uh, his experience on doing this rick thanks for coming on buddy 
Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Rick, we got a chance to meet and talk for a little bit back at Crypticon in November. And uh, like I said, with your busy schedule, my busy schedule, it's taken us, you know, four or five months to get this thing set up. But I'm excited to have you on. Well, I appreciate being on. I enjoyed talking with you at Crypticon. I think we're going to be there this year, too. And, uh, um, you know, I love talking about Bigfoot, Bigfoot research. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, fascinated with your podcast for a while. So I appreciate being here. No problem. So I want to go back to the beginning, Rick. You had an experience in uh, Wisconsin in 2010 that kicked all this off for you. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, you know, I I was always aware of Bigfoot or the Bigfoot phenomenon, but I wasn't really actively out in the woods researching this. Uh, you know, I'd read some things about it or looking for it, but, you know, I had one of these things cross a road in front of uh, me as I was driving west to east in northern Wisconsin one day, and I really didn't know what I saw. And uh, that got me kicked off. That you know, I, it, you know, when you see something, you're not sure your eyes can't can't absorb it. Your senses are looking at it. And this, in the case of this, I saw a large, seven foot plus bipedal, reddish brown haired, colored thing. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was trying to process: is it a moose, an elk? But it was standing upright and it crossed. Uh, traffic in front across there were no other cars in the area I was on it, but across two lanes of oncoming uh, grass median in the middle and the two lanes I was driving um, had someone with me and went down a, down an embankment and hurtled over a fence like a hurdler so I, I just didn't know what I saw and uh, I dove into the research and uh, found the BFRO you know did my due diligence in reading I still read a lot um, looked into the BFRO, tried to get on an expedition and get out and you know, learn from people who are actively researching this. And fast forward 12 years later, I'm still very active in this. And I've had enormous number of experiences. I've learned a lot of things firsthand uh, about this. And I, you know, you trust your eyes, but I've had other visual um, sightings, experiences with this. I know these things are real. I've seen them. And what kind of evidence do you look for when you're out? Let's, I like to ask us of Bigfoot researchers, what do you define a perfect area for a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, whatever the situation is? What, what type of property would we say that you're looking for that would be a perfect place to start searching for a Bigfoot? So that's a great question. I appreciate it, uh, Jerry, because, uh, you know, when we do expeditions in the BFRO does so oh, anywhere from eight to 12 expeditions around the country every year too. Um, you know, we lead these team of people out into an area, but we look for a history of sightings uh, uh, where people have reported seeing these and uh, BFRO uh, has a very, very large database that's been assembled over the years. And there's investigators like myself that will talk to witnesses that report seeing one of these things or having experiences, encounters with them, whether it's on their property or uh, property that they, you know, are frequenting. And, you know, we go into and look a- into clusters of these things. Uh, so when, and, the, and you do find that, you will find that on, as you map this out, you'll find clusters of sightings. You say, well, why are they possibly in there? And the evidence to answer your question, you know, visual evidence where people see these things or they maybe are, uh, mischievous getting on a property, a farm property, and the you know uh, people are seeing them regularly there. Uh, a good area is typically going to have number one water. 
because these things are typically around water or water source. So whether it's a swamp or waterfalls, and I actually, you know, if there's an insight in this, I, I've been doing a lot of work on looking where there's clusters of waterfalls. Uh, and it seems the sightings for Bigfoot always are around them. So where you have areas, counties or areas of, uh, of a lot of waterfalls, um, geographically, Bigfoot sightings seem to accumulate around them. So you need a water source that will follow the water and the waterways. Um, one thing about Bigfoot, people think it's a singular creature out on the West Coast. It's, you know, roaming wild by itself. That's not the case. There's lots of them. There, There's never one. I can tell you that firsthand from my own research. There's never one. There's always they're always in groups, and uh, so I think just like tribes, they are, are family units. They are they have social order and they're in a in a group. And typically, where you have a water source, an ongoing water source, food, and they will follow game or where game accumulate. They're omnivores, so they will follow uh, game and game trails. And, uh, and then you got to look at the plant life. Uh, you know they are omnivores and will eat. Uh, a variety of things they harvest and eat crops uh, where they're where they're grown, and so we get reports of that all the time where they're seeing their farmers' fields and things. So look, you got to look for food sources, you got to look for water, uh, and then we have a database that tells where these things have been sighted or experienced over time, and so um, that helps you, you know, isolate an area. So um, those are some of the things we look at. You know, as to the question on evidence, you know, footprint casts are great. Audio, any audio you can get is great. Certainly, a visual is great. Um, they, these things will leave stick structures in the woods, um, glyphs, they'll leave things around campsites. So you can get physical evidence, you can get audio evidence, anything that's sensory. And the good news is our, you know, technology is getting better. So it seems like every year I go out and there's some new level of night vision or thermal we can use. And, uh, we get more and more evidence as we go with it. Talk to me a little more detail about the stick structures. I know that's something that you, uh, you're on your fourth edition uh, uh, of writing about the stick structures. Talk to me a little bit about that. What are they used for? How do you tell the difference between that being a Bigfoot strict, uh, stick structure as opposed to some, you know, uh, just a bundle of limbs that fell in a certain way? Give me a, give me an idea of what an average person will be looking at. Sure. I appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a... Um... Uh, a partner and owner in I Know Squatch, and uh, we our business, you know, we try to bring uh, original artwork, authentication uh, to things. So, you know, we sell, we're at different shows uh, during the course of the year at conferences. I'll be speaking at one upcoming in Western North Carolina, but, you know, we sell uh, clothing, hats, stickers, buttons, wristbands, field guides, things that are associated with uh, Bigfoot. And we always try to a lot of our illustrations show Bigfoot and the way it's reported, peeking around a tree or striding, if you will. People report how they report it. But one of the things I report are these stick structures. And uh, the field guide I've put out is in its fourth printing. Um, and I've designed it's a book that you can put in a backpack and take out, but it identifies, I think I have seven different types of stick structures that uh, Bigfoots will assemble. And to your question, I always try to debunk, and I recommend in the book, try to look for the natural causes of why uh, something would be assembled in the woods. So, uh, you know, plants and trees grow differently depending on their influences. So whether it's uh, gravity or sunshine or water, they'll go grow in response to that. Um, you know, storms and downbursts of, you know, thunderstorms, snow load, those types of things will overload tree structures and, you know, trees break and fall into crazy, you know, pickup stick looking configuration. So you always want to debunk, but 
What I'm looking for with Bigfoot is something that's purpose, purposefully engineered. And you'll see that when they build a, like an asterisk or an X, you'll see that the members of the asterisk, if there's uh, three trees that they've stripped all the bark off of and the side branches, where they assemble them, there will be symmetry in the way it's assembled. So it's not the random patterning that you get when trees fall in the woods or uh, branches and limbs fall. These, are, you could, these stand out. You'll see the symmetry and that there's an equal amount of tree on each side of the center or focal point of the X or the asterisk. When they use, when they build, when they take and bend over a tree or an arch, and you'll see these sort of like I always say, like croquet hoops will be one after another uh, in the woods. They'll stick the, you know, the the long and not the rooted end in the ground, but the other end after they strip the side branches and bark off a lot, they'll stick that deep into the ground or hold it down with a, with a large rock or a log. So you'll see purposefully how these things have been built or engineered. Some sometimes not just built by an individual, but it takes more than one to do it. And uh, lastly, is there's a lot of force. They'll twist and turn and break the tree branches to um, form some of these things. One of the most common is what we call an you know, upside down check mark, or it's an acute angle break. And you'll see two or three of these right next to each other where they've twisted the top of the tree and bent it over. And one, two, three, in symmetry, they all look the same. And a lot of times that is an indication that there's a sentry or a Bigfoot in that area that's overlooking or observing. So, um, it, it, they're not random. When you come upon a few of these in the woods, there's a, all of a sudden there's a cluster of them. Uh, the expedition I was on in uh, South Carolina in the mountains recently, we, we had one area that we found off Forest Road that uh, deep in the woods, you know, miles back from anywhere, all of a sudden there's a whole group of these things. And everybody that went there, whether it was day or night, reported feelings of being watched or um you know, have funny feelings. And we found imprints on the ground, possible footprints and things. But, you know, we've got a lot of pictures of these. I'm going to actually use some of them in my up, one of my upcoming uh, uh, modifications to the book. But, you know, when you get to a group of these things, I often think they're still around. They're watching, you know, which is crazy, too. And they'll put them up in area stick structures, then they'll take them down. They'll be gone, to, you know, at the end of the season. So uh, I don't know why they do it, but they do it in patterns and groups and, you know, coast to coast. The crazy thing about it is you see a lot of similarities. So, if you you know you'll see the same ones in uh, South Florida that you see up in the Pacific Northwest. That's what I was going to ask you. Is there any any idea on why they do they do these structures? Well, you know, people think that it has something to do with us, Jerry. Like uh, an X means don't go past this spot, but that's us just overlaying our own thoughts on on this. We can't think entirely like a you know like a Sasquatch at all. But uh, I think they have more meaning for each other. What's curious about this, if you look at a lot of Native American symbols, and I've done a lot of research on this, but uh, there's some overlay. Um, the axes, the asterisk, the uh, hoop, the bent over hoop, a lot of those things show up in Native American symbolism too, consistently over time and have meanings. Uh, so that's curious to me too. You know, Native Americans, I have a lot of respect for it, but they, you know, all the different tribes and the Native Americans nations over time all have a name for Sasquatch. Uh, they all acknowledge it uh, going back through time. You know, they interacted with them, whether it was trade or over territory, et cetera, but they have a lot of respect for them. So, um, you know, that you, we got to listen to that too, as we're out, you know, looking at things we ought to always consider the Native American aspect. All right. So now that we're on the Native American aspect, uh, Native Americans, a lot of them refer to the sky people. I know uh, if you go out 
to the petrified forest. Uh, I believe it was the Apache. I could be wrong on this, but the the Native Americans in that area considered a lot of the um, remnants from the petrified wood and stuff laying down. They thought they were bones from the sky people. And therefore, they were off limits and cursed if you touch them. A lot of people equate the Native Americans talking about sky people to the fact that aliens have been around for as long as as people could exist. Now, there are two different thoughts that I know most people think that uh, Bigfoot and, and the likes are creatures, cryptids that had just been here and they're very elusive, but there are people who feel like they could be either interlopers from another dimension or they could be aliens. Which camp do you fit in? So I'm going to answer that when given two choices, take both. And <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, there is maybe there's an unhealthy trend in Bigfoot research. Uh, and maybe it overlaps into ufology or, uh, paranormal ghost research, et cetera. But uh, you know, there's two camps, sort of. One is physical evidence. It's a, a primate uh, that exists in our woods that uh, has only physical characteristics to it. It's undiscovered. Uh, there's a small number of them. And uh, that's, you know, that's all it is. It has primate behavior. Um, don't Don't even talk to me about any you know, human aspect, DNA, human characteristics, you know, the whole uh, pognid versus hominid thing. Uh, there's the camp that it's relic hominid. Uh, if you look at Dr. Meldrum and a lot of his research, that's kind of where he's arrived at. And then, uh, you know, if you go and where we are, I know Squatch read a lot of these conferences. I speak at some, but you do get a lot of discussion about, you know, the physical side. That's one camp which gets very, very dogmatic, especially people that have done research over the year. They want to just fall into that. I think it's kind of safe in their mind that, hey, it's physical and it's a primate. And then there's the quote unquote woo side of things. And when you say woo, well, it's paranormal. It's a uh, it's an alien. It was brought here from somewhere else or it's a you call it interloper, but, uh, you know, steps from one dimension to another here and uh, has paranormal abilities and uh it can cloak uh you can be looking at it and then it disappears and that's because it's not really there it has characteristics and can phase in and out like predator and the predator movies i mean you hear all these things one to another so yeah your question to me is which, which camp am i in and i said both and that's because my experience uh has been both so uh you know i can't explain things happen when you're out looking for physical evidence with these things daytime or nighttime, things happen that are physical. You may find a footprint. You know, a footprint will show up, what, you know, on a trail. I had this happen in the Smoky Mountains uh, about a year and a half ago. I was with a group. We, it had rained, but we went in to an area um, scouting for a nighttime activity, night hikes, came back through walked the same trail, and it was a huge footprint right in the middle of the trail, right down where we had gone through. Now, you know, uh, we felt like we were being watched. Uh, I've got some photos of that area that, we kind of, you can see some things uh, hiding in the Mount Laurels, et cetera, but they stepped right in the middle of the trail and left physical evidence as much as to tell us, uh, you know, military will do that, but as much as to tell us, you know, Hey, we're here. We know you're looking kind of thing, but that's physical evidence. Uh, you know, so we get audio, we get recordings of them, whether they howl or whoop or knock, you know, the ways they communicate with each other. We get that that's physical evidence. That's actual auditory. 
But then paranormal stuff happens around these things that are hard to explain. You know, how is it that all of a sudden you can see two red eyes peeking around a tree in the woods looking at you when it's dark? Out? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Or, um, white lights moving in the woods. I, on the two expeditions I've been on in the past month, one in uh, mountains of northern South Carolina, one in the mountains western part of Georgia, I've had I've seen white lights. And I, you know, I'm scratching my head saying, you know, what the heck happened? I, you know. Where these come from? I had, I've seen them before, but twice in a month. Uh, one of them followed a group of four of us up a trail at 1.30 in the morning. And I looked back and saw the thing coming up the trail. It was about 100 yards behind us. Then it ducked down off the trail, went into a creek area. And we all ran to try and find it, couldn't find it. I can't explain it. It was a white light following us up the trail. I observed this for you know, a number of seconds, probably five or six seconds. I watched it and then called the rest of the group to turn. We all went after it and was gone. Now, how did, I don't know how that happens, but it's not unique. When you do Bigfoot research, different things happen that you can't explain. That doesn't fall into a physical category. I can't cast that like a footprint and show someone, you know, but it happens. So, you know, I'm, you got to stay open-minded with this. These things happen a lot around when you're doing Bigfoot research and, you know, to dismiss one, you know, just say, you know, from the physical cave, Hey, anything paranormal, I can't be, you know, that's not evidence I think is incorrect. And I like Tom Powell. I always talk about him. When I get asked this question, but his books, um, you know, Edges of Science is probably the best one. He talks a lot about, you know, it's all proof. It's not necessarily all proof, but it's all evidence. You know, we have to be open minded to the evidence. I was talking to John E.L. Tenney probably three years ago, and we got on the subject of people who had um, uh, Bigfoot sightings or experiences. And he said a lot of times they didn't really remember. And I don't know if this might just be suggestive or not, but he said they didn't remember until it was brought up or some brought it up on their own that before their sighting, usually within seconds of their sighting, they either saw a bright flash in the sky or maybe like a sonic boom sound that he started experiencing that uh, or, or, or he started getting that from a lot of experiencers. Is that something you have come across in your research? Uh, I have not experienced a sonic boom type of thing or the loud noise. I've heard unexplainable noises around these things because they're great mimics. So one of the things I learned about them is they, they're masters of deflection. And I said earlier, there's never one. I uh, think, you know, they work in a group. Maybe it's, maybe you're in a place in the woods where they are. Not every place in the woods you go out at night, you know, they're not always there. But if you're in an area, they are. And they come around, they're curious, you know, why are these people on a trail they're not hunters it's you know one in the morning and they're back in the woods somewhere where i frequent or i you know and they they're nocturnal they're active during the day too but you know they're they're very they move a lot at night and they come around people and and maybe they don't want you there and they can make you feel uneasy uh they'll use different noises uh maybe a sonic boom maybe we've heard noises that are mechanical digital uh everything i think they mimic noises they hear uh, we hear circular saws car alarms car doors opening and closing digital beeps uh they'll mimic cell phone sounds uh it's crazy the stuff they'll do and you know and it, you know there's not no source of that that's actual around you in the woods and that it's happening and it makes you uneasy so they do a lot of things to make you feel unpleasant so maybe you'll get out of there i mean they're masters of stealth and deflection and uh, you know, you may have evidence you're collecting, you're recording this or they're around, um, you know, we're, 
you know, that, these kinds of things will happen if they want you to move. So whether it's a sonic boom or a, you know, we call it zapping, but uh, it can feel electrical or like a heavy weight has been placed upon you or you get fight or flight. But when they do that kind of thing, they typically want you out of the area. You need to pay attention to that as a researcher. Get out of there. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, I talk to them all the time when they're around. Sometimes they interact. You know, they'll talk back and forth. You'll hear them talking with each other or toss pebbles in front of you or knock on. You know, you'll knock. They'll knock. You can interact. But other times they don't want you around. And that's when you get these sonic booms, unpleasant feelings. You know, get out of there. And I think you got to heed that and just leave. Because you don't want to antagonize these things. If they, they are they are territorial. They are, they do like routines. And if you happen to be in the middle of one of them, they're going to let you know and kind of push you out. So while we're on the subject of uh, evidence, what are some of the bigger stories that maybe you heard, uh, maybe before you got into this or after you got into it? that you really put a lot of credence into and say, you know what, that, that really sounds 100% legit for me. It's always been the ape Canyon story. Um, and when you talk about, there's always more than one, you know, that story seems to make sense. Cause that goes back to what the thirties or something like that. I can't remember all the details right off the bat, but I mean, you know, these guys were pretty much trapped in their cabin and these things bombarding them with rocks and, and everything else. And they were so scared that they couldn't wait to get out of there that following morning. And I don't know, to, to me, that story, especially with the fact that, that uh, I think his name was Fred or uh, I think so, but he, he just didn't want to talk about it for years and then eventually right. came out. But that story to me just seemed out of most of the stories, the big stories anyway, that I've heard that one always seemed the most credible to me. How do you kind of weigh in on that situation? Yeah, so that's I love that question. You've, you've done your research on Bigfoot. That's good. You have some good uh, good understanding of some of the things that are out there. I like the Ape Canyon uh, story a lot. Uh, you brought up a good point that it wasn't discussed for a number of years, and then it was. And that happens in you know ufology too with stories, uh, you know UFO encounters. There's nothing said for a long time, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of discussion about it. Um, I look at the behavioral aspects about with that one. So what goes on in the Ape Canyon story that makes it sound credible? And it's the territorial nature. So I referred to some of that a moment ago. Now, these guys are in that shack or that cabin out there in the middle of the woods for whatever reason. And the Bigfoots, that's their area. You know, that, that they live there, traverse there, and all of a sudden their routine is compromised. Uh, maybe they have children. Maybe that's a breeding area. Maybe that, you know, that social order um you know they're trying to protect the, the you know the wife and kids who are in the swamps or in the areas where there's water there and it so they want those humans out they're going to get them out any way they can now pounding on the outside of a a cabin or a building uh throwing rocks at a cabin or a building uh, hitting things uh, getting on the roof jumping up and down causing a ruckus to try to get you out of there making you feel uneasy all bigfoot behavior i've experienced it it happens I had one of these things hit the side of my truck a week and a half ago. You know, it was bang, hit the side of it very, very hard. I was in an area they wanted us out. We just started to leave. And as we were driving on Forest Road, gravel road, pow, hit the side, passenger side of my door hard. You know, left marks on it. I have the evidence. I've got the hand marks on it. So, you know, when they don't want you in an area, that's what they do. And that's consistent with Ape Can. I think that's a, I think it's a credible story. Um, so certainly the, um, you know, Bluff Creek and, uh, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film has stood the test of time. 
I mentioned Dr. Meldrum. I've seen his presentations on that. He's, you know, people have taken that apart digitally, you know, one thing after another. And it looks, Patty, female, Bigfoot looks, sure looks real. And it stands the test of time physically from a number of, uh, any way you look at it, a number of ways, scrutiny wise, it stands, it, it's, it seems legit. Uh, I like the Albert Osman story, but, you know, when he was, if you read that, where he's picked up and carried away, he's uh, hunting in a sleeping bag and got picked up and carried to, uh, oh, yeah. We reported like a family unit and, uh, you know, was sitting there, had some of the things in his backpack and was with the, you know, this, it seemed like a family of four, uh, you know, the, I'll call it husband, wife, and son and daughter, but, uh, you know, was with them and his descriptions of them and their behavior is really good. And, you know, the, father bigfoot if you will got into the tin of snuff he had and uh, that didn't go well or chewing tobacco or snuff whatever and then he out of, he ran out of there got out of there as fast as he could so you know, how do you make up stories like that with you know the if you look at the account of that the detail and what they look like etc it's pretty darn good and you know so i, I look for you know I, I investigate a lot of witness reports go out to their property i talk to it you do get hoaxes you know, you get kids with overactive imaginations or people just trying to get five minutes of fame, but the detail isn't there. So any of these stories and anything you read like that, and I do encourage any of your listeners, if you're interested in Bigfoot, read, read, read. You know, um, you know, you got to sort out for yourself, but don't believe everything that's online. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there that, you know, every, you know, everything in the woods is not Bigfoot. But, you know, read and read the stories. Look for the detail. If the detail's there. You know, and a lot if the story I've read enough on this, I've interviewed enough witnesses, you see some of the same type of behaviors. So just like Ape Canyon, where they're pounding on the outside of the building and watch out of there, you know, Bigfoots will do this sort of thing. You know, they do it. Um, I've been on the receiving end of that where they've hit the side of my camper or, you know, been pushing on the tent or hitting the tables in the picnic area or opening cool. They do things where they're investigative or they're trying to get you know, they're trying to push you out of an area. They're trying to get a message across. Um, you see that same kind of behavior over and over with them. So that's what you got to look for, the detail and the correlation of the repetitive behavior. Do you consider them overall to be peaceful animals? Well, you know, you had to, you brought up, uh, you know, sky people and interlopers and, you know, uh, alien, all that kind of thing. You know, some of it gets back to what are they? Are they indigenous? You know, are they here? Are they peaceful? Um, you know, if you, if, so if somebody asked you, are people, you know, peaceful? Are we, you know, are humans peaceful? How would you answer that? I think the obvious would be in general, most are, but it depends on the person. So, which is probably the point you're getting at. Most of them are, but probably some of them aren't. Right. And that's kind of where I've arrived at this point. Um, I think there's good ones and then there's not some good ones. You know, I, because you see you see some behaviors that you say, mm, that's not good. Uh, and, you know, why would that happen? Uh, do I think they're, you know, as a group out there with a mission to attack humans and, uh, you know, kidnap humans and take them away uh, or, you know, destroy society, be invasive? No, not at all. I think they live on the, the edge of civilization, but they're not remote. Um, it's crazy. Some of the reports we get, you know, close to civilization. So where I've arrived, uh, you know, after uh, 12 uh, and it's ongoing, I haven't, I still am very active, but at this point, I think they're opportunistic. They're omnivores. You know, that if there's an open food source they can get to, and it's not watched by 
people or civilization and they have access, they'll get to it. Um, so I think there's good ones and there's not so good ones, but uh, there's no advantage for them to be overt and attacking us. I mean, we've got technology. There's lots and lots of us. We're all over the place. We're unpredictable. You know, if you're a Bigfoot, you know, we're very, we're, we're scary in our unpredictability. We do crazy things. What do they see in the woods? You know, and they live, there's a lot, there's tons and tons of places they can live out there. I think there's, what is there, 700 million uh, uh, acres of uh, national forest or something like that. And there's all the private land. Uh, there's lots of places where these, these things to be. And then we show up, build a fire, get drunk and throw things at each other and make a lot of noise. Or we show up with guns and fire guns and things and kill deer that maybe they're hunting or they've been tracking, you know, they're great, very observant creatures. Our behavior is unpredictable. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're a problem sometimes. And, um, you know, if we're a problem for them, they've got all, they've got every right to react the way they do and, you know, get us out of an area if they want to. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think they're, they want to be left alone to a degree, but they're curious also. Um, but I don't think they're, they get up every day with an attacking mindset towards humanity. I've got two other evidence questions and then we'll move on. So the first one, uh, we had some uh, uh, guests on Rodney Adams and, and uh, Draven a couple of months ago, and they had brought up the fact of since we don't know necessarily if if Bigfoot Sasquatch is uh, interdimensional, interloper, paranormal, cryptid, whatever the case may be, they started using some other techniques such as uh, paranormal EMF uh, detectors and stuff like that uh, out in the field. And when we were talking earlier, you were saying that you guys have experienced a lot of paranormal stuff, uh, including recently. Tell me what you've experienced paranormal wise and how you're using that in some of the research techniques that you're doing now. Well, so it's similar to, um, you know, a lot of paranormal research around, you know, ghosts. Um, and, you, you know, you can see there's a lot of that on uh, the different types of equipment being used. You see it on in a lot of the shows now, table, uh, cable or online. Uh, you know, technology's gotten better. And years ago when we did this, if you went out and you had a you know, cheap $29 recorder, maybe Generation 1 night vision you could use, um, you know, that was about it, you know. That was what you had. Then you just had to rely on your senses. Now, I just I want to underline this for any listeners that you have. And I do this when I talk at expeditions. I always tell people, you know, going out, don't over rely on technology. Use your five senses first. But uh, I would say, number one, if you know, any recorder you can bring is good. And you can pick up more and more things that you can segment out on Audacity or uh, SoundCloud. Take a look at it. And you can see when you record these things, you can see how they're, you know, where they are. Um, from an audio standpoint versus animals, people. And that's great. We didn't have that years ago. So that's great in terms of evidence. Um, you know, night vision has gotten better and better, but real, really thermals have gotten way better. I mean, the latest versions of FLIR, Pulsar, et cetera, you can pick up things, you can see things further in a distance and you can really, if one of these things is peeking around a tree and you happen to see it because you think they're there through a, through a FLIR and pick it up, but, you know, we didn't have that detection years ago and you can pick it up a hundred yards or something away and you could see, bipedal or uh, you know the movement of it watch watch uh, any of the show expedition bigfoot's the current one but even finding bigfoot before that but the, you know they're using these latest generation uh thermals and you know you get a, you can get evidence on those things you can see some things that you know years ago you couldn't but uh we're using a lot of the ghost meter type things these days too emf detectors tri-field meters 
radio frequency. I added, you know, just recently uh, on one of these things, we were at a spot, um, at, you know, end of a forest road in the dark, and we had activity. They were starting to come around us. We built, had built this, it was cold. We built a small fire, and we'd been in this place a couple hours. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll go down, a group of, say, half a dozen of us, we'll go down to a, an area that we'd scouted during the day that looks good, maybe near a water source, woods, surrounded by woods. You always try to give them the high ground so they can observe you. But a vulnerable place like a end of a gravel road. And then we'll, you know, we'll arrive there maybe at dusk and then we'll send teams of two or three out and we'll, you know, walk 100 yards one way or 200 yards another across the field, come back, make a little bit of noise, uh, knock, try to invite, um, build a small fire. And, and, you know, I always tell people you can't out-tech these things. You can't be more stealth than they are. So you got to put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Maybe they'll come to you. And if they choose to come around and that, you know, back to my scenario, you do that, they come around, they don't, it's not from one place, you know, they'll come around three different places or four points of the compass. They'll be around you if they can, and they'll interact with each other. So they'll knock or they'll make whistle noises or a whoop type noise and we'll hear them and they'll be around us. But that's when these meters and things start going off, which is crazy. You know, uh, you know, you're in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. RF meters should not go off. No, you know? no electricity. <laughs> no, that, right. But they do. And in the one I was on recently, was, and you, you heard these because you do ghost type investigation, RF meter just clicks, slow click as it goes. And all of a sudden it goes haywire, just, you know, like a Geiger counter goes crazy. And it's at the same time they're around. Now, I can't explain that. I'm not here to say it's a traditional primate behavior either. You know, I don't know what that is or how that happens, but it, I've experienced it. Um, we'll use e EMF meters and we have activity and we'll stand and hold them and turn 360. And curiously enough, all of a sudden you point the direction where the sound is coming from or you think they are and they, they spike. Um, I've been in areas... I know an area, a habituation area where these things frequent that I still interact with uh, the individuals that own the property. And, uh, you know, they've got a site at the back of the property. These things come on a regular basis and the EMF readings in that area are off the charts. I can't explain that. Now, why would that be in the middle of the woods? Why, you know, and they weren't there before and now they are in the you know area. They interact with the Bigfoots where they, you know, leave things, Bigfoots bring things back and forth. The EMF, numbers are astronomical and they spike big, big numbers. And I can't explain that they weren't there before. Why is this? You know, so, you know, when you get to the abilities or the, you know, the things that go along with the, you know, a Bigfoot or Bigfoots um, that are not physically explainable, these are some of them. And these, um, the good thing is we've got detection devices now that are picking up some of this. It's a head scratcher. I can't explain it all, but I'm here to tell you, you know, these things happen. All right. Well, I got to ask you the one thing that you've been asked a million times, I'm sure. Why is it that nobody can ever find carcasses or bones or dead Bigfoot somewhere around? What is the reasoning that they're so elusive even after death? So there's a number of things you could say. And it's funny. I just read a, you know, a member of a number of groups um, online that you know do research on this and a couple of them are armchair quarterbacks just do it from their laptop but some do a lot of online research and look into it but there have been i'll just make a statement there have been recorded um interactions with these things where over time they were caught or a body was found or 
believe it or not, even there's some records of these things. And I'm going back hundreds of years where they were caught and even put in jail kind of thing. So there have been captures. Um, I don't want to talk about any individual one or whatever, but there have been. And, you know, you can find some of that in research. Um, the animals are the bones, the carcasses of animals in the woods typically don't stick around that long ever anyway, because other animals will eat them. I mean, that's, they're digested routinely. Uh, so that's another reason too. And then third, you know, as I said earlier, there's never one of them. So if they're in groups, uh, they take care of each other. You know, if you, what do humans do? If someone passes away, we incinerate the remains or we bury it. Um, the burial, that type of thing has been witnessed. There's you can you read up on that sort of thing. You can read some of that um, where people who have been observing these have been allowed to be around the Bigfoots as a group have seen this sort of thing. Uh, you know, so, I, you know, why isn't there bones? I'm, I bet you there is, too. And why? You know, I bet the government's got lots of this uh, evidence, too. You know, I sympathize with the government because the government's not all knowing. Uh, you know, the government acknowledges this. They have to answer a lot of questions on it. And I don't think they can answer all the questions. I'm not here to answer all the questions on this. I don't know. It's a gift that keeps on giving. I keep learning more and more about this um, as you get out there. But bones and, the, you know, bodies, et cetera. You know, I, I, would, I would bet, you know, the government has got all of that, uh, could acknowledge it. But I don't think the government can answer all the questions that would come out on it if it was acknowledged tomorrow. You know, UFOs are getting a lot of military acknowledgement now. You're seeing a lot about that, right? Think back mm -hmm. five, ten years ago. That never would have happened. So, you know, one step at a time. I do not believe, I certainly don't know everything about these things. I don't believe the bigger agencies like the government does. Uh, so I look at it as ongoing research. I think the bones and the bone evidence of it, uh, if you will, is out there. There are some groups out there that are dedicated to, we're going to get a body and bring it in kind of thing. You know, uh, there's Bigfoot groups that are, I think, what is it, North American Wood Ape Associated? I think that's what it's called. But, you know, they're dedicated to that. There was a group down on the Gulf Coast a while back was dedicated to that. We're going to get a body and bring it in. Uh, I knew a very experienced uh, hunter, had a group of folks uh, up in Wisconsin years ago, and I warned him against it. But he had everything lined up from, uh, you know, traps built in the woods to shoot and kill one of these things, how to uh you know, vivisection it apart, bring it in. He had uh, uh, where he was going to bring it and uh, the media all on alert and how he was going to bring it forward and contracts set up to show it in Vegas. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know that all of that is really productive. Where's that all going to go? You know, what does it prove in the end anyway? So, you know, I, you know, I don't know if that, I don't think Bigfoots are going to allow that to happen too. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, to say there's no bodies that have ever been brought in or no bones. I'm not, I'm not on that page at all. I, I think it probably has happened. It's just not generally going to be recognized. So you've obviously spent some time in, in Wisconsin and in Michigan area and up there. Uh, dog man is pretty big dog men, Sasquatch, same, same entities, or do you think that's two completely different, uh, different sides of the fence? So I like to hear, you know, what you think of it too here, but I'll give you my two cents and you can chime in because I'm glad it's a good question. Um, because first of all, you get points, Jerry, for bringing it up because sometimes, you know, I talk with folks, I do a podcast. They don't even want to talk about it. Like, ah, oh, you know, uh, not enough evidence is just some crazy misinterpretation, et cetera. I'll give you a couple of things to think about. Uh, you know, one is uh, all Bigfoots are not the same in physical characteristics. You get reports in like East Texas that they have three toes. 
Uh, other areas, they have, um, you know, five kind of thing on the foot. We get reports. Um, there are reports of these things having more of a muzzle type nose or an elongated nose or face. So um, that's possible. It's a variation or a type of Bigfoot, if you will. Uh, I've had a, I've investigated reports. One was with a hunter. Uh, another was with a fisherman where they saw dogmen uh, type of creatures. Um, one thing that's consistent with it is uh the descriptions are consistent uh in terms of what it was doing what it looked like it's you know a standing up the dog type of creature black standing up long muzzle nose and if it looks at you it's bone chilling and the person who sees it just wants to get out of there even i had a hunter tell me i couldn't even look at it saw it through a scope and scared to death just you know hightailed it out of the area fishermen said the same thing so it's like kind of like a the connection is almost like an evil presence it's not good um, I've not seen one, um, but you know, is, is it a variation of Bigfoot? Maybe is it a separate entity? Maybe, um, you know, I don't know, but they, there are clusters of them, you know, Linda Godfrey wrote about the Michigan Bigfoot. That's a good book. Um, I've talked with her about this at shows and things. So she will say that, you know, the Bigfoots and, uh, dogmen are two separate entities and geographically will honor each other's territory and things. So, uh, she's done a lot of research on it. And, uh, I do know witnesses that have seen this really believe in what they saw and the witness descriptions are similar. So, um, you know, I don't know. What do you think about it? I think they're two different entities, but probably closely related in some way. I think maybe geographically speaking, uh, maybe the separation has caused some, some different transformations over the years or something. But from what I've, what I've heard from my reports, most of the dog man reports more, uh, you know, as some people call them werewolves or however you want to term it. But most of the time they will be bipedal, but they end up on all fours eventually and running at a, at a very high speed. And a lot of times they seem to be a little more uh, aggressive than the report right. you hear about Bigfoot chasing cars, scratching yeah. and stuff like that. So between the nose being different between them, usually going on all fours, I've never heard a, a Bigfoot report of him eventually going on all four. So that, I think that's enough to separate them into two different categories. Yeah, I have. Um, so I've had, you know, reports. Uh, actually, there was some film, actually, of uh, Bigfoot going, uh, you know, from bipedal to quadrupedal. Uh, I think it was up in like Victoria Island or um, North Pacific Northwest. I looked at years ago. It was one of the best pieces of footage I saw. Might still be, listeners might still be able to find it if they look, but um, you could clearly see it, you know, on two feet going to four as it exited. I think Bigfoot's have the ability to do both, but um, you're right. You know, you bring up the, you know, the chasing of cars and the aggressive nature of this. I, you know, you hear about that. Um, uh, you, you definitely hear about that with the with the dogman. The characteristics of it are more attacking, more aggressive. Uh, you know, I was talking about, you know, my vehicle being hit by one of the, I'm not discounting that it could have been one of those creatures. You know, I don't know, but. Uh, you know, running after cars, chasing after cars, uh, speed, a lot of speed when they're seen very fast, um, more than one at a time. Uh, you know, it's never a good thing, I guess, with the dogman reports. There's just not, you know, you, you said before, do you think uh, Bigfoot are you know, benevolent or peaceful creatures? I think they have that ability. I'm, I don't know about the whole dogman thing. It's just never seems to be a positive experience, you know. Um, you hear things about Bigfoots that are interactive and playful. 
observing kids, you know, observing or habituating with property and exchanging things, bringing gifts to the people that live there. You know, you hear things that are, you know, nice, uh, peaceful, if you will, coexistent. You don't hear that with the dogman thing. So it just doesn't seem that it's not, if they are real and they're here, you know, I don't think they're good creatures. I want to end on this before we uh, get into uh, how people can follow you and, and uh, some of the conferences and stuff you're going to be speaking at. In the last three or four years, especially uh, in the Bigfoot field and in the uh, paranormal field, I've noticed a lot of bickering, uh, a lot of people taking sides on, you know, oh, we don't like these certain researchers or we don't like these researchers or this researcher is full of crap. And, and I'm talking in both fields, paranormal and, and Bigfoot. What do you think is the reason for all the taking sides instead of the communities just being together and all trying to work for a common bond? What do you think's changed in the last two or three years? I, I'll throw my two cents in first. I think a lot of it has to do with television and notoriety. There are so many TV shows that everybody seems like there's people who do it for the love of what they're doing. And there's people who do it to just try to get on TV. And, you know, I've got certain paranormal investigators that I've spoken about, you know, on the air uh, that I don't like their style, but at least I'm open about why I don't like them and their style. Uh and really, there's only one. <laughs> so for anybody listening to me out of everybody out there that does what I do, there's only one that I have a problem with. And I'll openly admit it's nothing personal against that person. I just don't like their style of investigating. Are you seeing the same thing in your field? Have you seen it? You've been doing this for 12 years. Have you seen a change in recent years? Or has it always been that way, but social media makes it a little more noticeable? No, I, I would say the same thing you're experiencing. So uh, great question. Glad we're confronting it. Uh, it disappoints me sometimes, but um, it's I think online. So yeah, two things. One, uh, online social media makes it very easy for anybody that's part of a group or anyone that sees some evidence reported, whether it's a picture or an audio or something comes forward on social media. It's very easy for folks to say it's not real, it's not dissit, say it's not evidence, it was faked. Uh, clearly, you know, it's computer generated. You see all this stuff all the time. Uh, and some of it is, but, you know, whether it's real or not, it's just not looked at and discussed positively as possible evidence. It's just not. You know, so I think social media hurts that stuff a lot. It's easy to sit back and just be judge and jury over things online. And uh, I don't have a lot of tolerance for those groups. You know, I, I can tell you about one that they do it routinely. Um, so, you know, why would you do that? Why not, you know, discuss with the witness what, how it came forward, what happened and, you know, maybe reserve judgment, but learn whatever you can in the, in the event it's real, you might learn some things, characteristics you didn't know that later on would align with other reports. So the open mind isn't there like it should be because of social media, everyone's judge and jury. It's easy to do. So I, I would say that's, I agree with you on that notoriety. Number two, I, I, I think you're rock solid on that. And I'll, I'll refer to TV for that, but you know, a lot of the ghost shows that were on in the past, you know, some of them were, there was one or two, you know, go back 10 years. Uh, the one that Jason Hawes has and all that, you know, that pretty good stuff. And, but it was pioneering, but you could watch it. And they were out, out kind of on a journey trying to learn about this thing. And now you got some of these shows. I mean, they're so astonishingly um, sensational. It's hard to even watch, you know? Um, so it's hard you just change the channel because they're just trying to be so they're trying to 
you know, whether they're analyzing white noise and say, telling you that, you know, I just heard the ghost recite the Declaration of Independence, you know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. You know, it's hard to watch. So, you know, not everything. Oh, and in the name, every one of them is saying names, et cetera, et cetera. It's just crazy. So I think it's too sensational. It's too overblown. And that that is an issue. Um, you know, referring to you know, some of the shows and what went on. And I don't and there are there's a lot of dismissive stuff out there because of that. It's a reaction to it. If everything gets sensational, if everything is purported as or promulgated as, uh, you know, real, uh, guess what? After a while, the normal reaction is saying, no, nothing's real. So we're in that stage of this right now. Um, you know, everyone wants to judge evidence and say it's not proof. And I think we ought to just be open-minded to evidence. Finding Bigfoot as a show, you know, I'll give Matt Moneymaker and that I know that whole team, but, you know, I'll give them a shout out. But, you know, one of the things they did that was really good in their formula is the town hall. So if you watch that show, they had a town hall. They'd go to different states around the country. They'd have a town hall that was predicated on the local BFRO investigators would bring some people forward. They'd post it and they'd have people talk about in front of the, just in front of the camera. The group, uh, you know, the, the four researchers would stand in front of folks at a town hall. Maybe it was a local VFW hall or something or Elks Club. And these people would stand and talk about what they saw. And you could see that on the look of the witness's face. Sometimes they're very emotional. But you, you'd hear the stories, and then they'd go out, the team would go out to the location and try to replicate it. That's good research. It's just letting people tell you what went on, and there's nothing sensationalistic about that. That's people saying, hey, I saw one of these things, and this is what it did on my property. Or one day I was you know, a hunter in the woods, and one of them came around the corner and looked at me or threw a rock at me and hit my truck. Whatever it is, it's real, and it made an impact on the people that saw it because it they weren't in the mindset of trying to find Bigfoot before that, and it happened. Love that about that. You know, that was one of the best things. They put a show like that on just doing that right now, and it would be a big hit. Why? It's real people. It's not sensationalism. It's not a bunch of people running out trying to make a TV show. Okay. Town Hall worked. I'd like to see more of that. Expedition Bigfoot's on now. That shows. Third year. First year that came out was hard to watch for me because they thought they knew everything. Uh, we have an algorithm where we know where these things are. You know, again, I think they were going down that path to try and approve, and we know everything about it. And they went to regions out in the Pacific Northwest, and Bigfoot crosses this region based on reports. And we ran our algorithm this time of year. We have two weeks, and it's going to be here, and we're going to get the. You know, all it was crazy. I couldn't even watch. All right, <laughs> go for go forward a couple of years now. I just had this discussion with a group of folks and uh, online, but they've gotten a bit more humble. The show's gotten better, and it's because they've run into things they can't explain. And, you know, they're realizing that, hey, maybe this thing is unpredictable and there's more of them than we thought. And they're out here and they're kind of flipping the script on us a little bit. And we need to just, you know, suck it up and just record this stuff as evidence. But if you look at what's going on now with those four individuals on that show, I mean, they're scratching their head, uh, you know, on television. I think that's OK. You know, scratch your head, go on out and gather evidence and say, hey, I'm not sure what this stuff is, but it really happened. And look. And, you know, I like that, you know, I, I like that. And they're using new technology. They're using one of those shows recently, they're using LIDAR and they got, as they were scanning an area from above, they got what looks like a bipedal figure. They call it a ghost figure, but, a, you know, it was a bipedal, tall bipedal figure moving through the woods, you know, on LIDAR. Well, great. They apply technology we didn't have before. They got some evidence they, we would not have gotten before and they're scratching their head over it. That's fine. I mean, you know, that, I, I like I like that because it's just open-minded and it's being self-effacing and it's just bringing the stuff forward. So, 
you know, I think we're, we got to transition through this period of time here where, uh, you know, we've got, we have a lot of people, especially because of social media or what you said, the sensational nature of trying to make everything be a big event. You know, we've got a lot of that going on and we've got to get out of that and get into, uh, Hey, let's just look at the evidence and whether it's paranormal evidence, woo, if you call it, or it's physical evidence that we, we know we've seen before, it's all evidence. We all ought to chalk it up, put it on the board and talk about it. <laughs> Rick, it's been a blast having you on, buddy. I could probably talk to you another two hours. And uh, unfortunately, neither one of us had the time for that today. But uh, if somebody wanted to hear you speak, what's the best way they can keep up to what events you got coming out? I know you're going to be in Gatlinburg at that uh, the Bigfoot event that they have up there at the end of July. Tracy and I are going to try to make it up there for that one. Uh, so excited about being able to see you again then. But uh, if if I wanted to just know all things going on with you, where can I see you speak or what expeditions you might have coming up? How can I find out about those things? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you look, some of the upcoming festivals, things, this is we're getting into uh, that time of year. But uh, April 30th, another week we'll be at uh, I know Squatch will be vending. We'll be at Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Uh, not speaking at that, but I will be at that one. Um, I love people to come on by and chat with me about their you know, some of their uh, experiences, et cetera. We'll be, uh, uh, May 7th, we'll be in Townsend, Tennessee at the uh, Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Festival. That's the first time we've been at that. Looking forward to that. Um, May 13th and 14th is the West, Western North Carolina Bigfoot Conference. That's huge. I will be speaking at that on Friday night on the 13th uh, with another investigator friend of mine, Lori Wade. She and I will be um, speaking at that. And yeah, we will be at Gatlinburg too. That's uh july 23rd and then uh, there's a couple of coming up in the fall too we'll be at so I'm, I'm working through some things on that um but you know we we try to be at different events uh share our experiences talk about things i present on the stick structures a lot uh talk about you know talk about that and we vend and try to meet with people and i love the people that come to these events because you know they're out to learn they're a great class of people you know anybody that's interested in bigfoot paranormal like you probably experienced in the go and uh when i spent you last year at crypticon you know the people that come to these have a playful mind and open mind and are very interested in all aspects of this. And one of the fascinating things about paranormal, and I put Bigfoot in that class because it's beyond, you know, what we know for normal and physical. It's kind of, it doesn't matter what door you take to get into this. They, all of a sudden the different worlds kind of crisscross. It's crazy. So This is true. Uh, yeah. It doesn't get narrower. The more you get into it, it gets broader, which I really like about all this. So keep an open mind and, you know, folks, your listeners get out there, try to go to some of these different events. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about any experiences or questions. Yeah. How can people get some of the I know Squatch merchandise? Because that's some really cool merchandise. I know I bought a, a shirt. My daughter bought a shirt. They're really they're really fun designs. They're not like super, you know, dramatic pictures of big, but they're, they're fun uh, designs. So how can people uh, get a hold of some of that merchandise? Well, thanks for that. Yeah, we're uh, we have an Etsy store. You can t- go on I Know Squatch and uh, Etsy dash I Know Squatch, and you can take a look. All of our designs are original artwork. We trademark our uh, our logo and our looks that we have. Uh, we so we're not you know we always re- rely on the same old black silhouette that's out there for Bigfoot, and people have used that everywhere. We do our own things, but we have an Etsy store. We're on Instagram. We post on that regularly. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. So you can look us up. I know Squatch and find us on any of those. And, uh, you know, we stay up to date with uh, different postings of things all the time. We welcome anybody wanting to post or, uh, you know, follow up with us, any things that they have out there. But uh, that those are the best places to see us. 
And, you know, we're just trying to bring it forward in the way that people report seeing it or report interacting with it. So that's what we depicted in our representation. So, and we do all original stuff. So um, that's probably some of the best places to find us. Rick Rellis, thanks so much for coming on, dude. This was this has been uh, one of my favorite interviews that I have done since we started the show. And I didn't expect that as much going in because I've, you know, I'm not a huge Bigfoot guy. I completely believe in Bigfoot. It's just not something that fascinates me, and I don't know why. But occasionally, I'll have that conversation or I'll run across a certain story like the Ape Canyon deal uh, to where it just it just totally is mind-blowing to me. And this has been extremely eye-opening for me. Even though I've had some good conversations with other investigators, this one has been my favorite. Well, thank you for that, Jerry. I'd love to do it again with you. You get more interest in it, you know. I, you know, I've been a fan of your podcast. Uh, you get more interest in the subject. I'm glad to talk about it in any uh, any aspect again in the future. We should do it again. You had a great line of questioning. Awesome. Hey, I got one more question, and it, it's not an easy one. So, but I just really thought about it. If somebody wanted to go on one of your expeditions, give me just a brief rundown of what that would normally consist of. If I signed up, and if I would have went on the on the expedition you did in the Blue Ridge Mountains in, in South Carolina. What would I have shown up and what would have happened and for how long? Yeah, so uh, you can go on the uh, BFRO.net site online and take a look. And the BFRO posts uh, state to state, county to county, uh, witness reports that have been vetted out. And you can read them and you can see. So if you're interested in a particular piece of geography, you can see those reports. Also on that site is a listing of expeditions. And the BFRO runs across the country. Oh, anywhere from eight to maybe 12 or so a year. It's um, And a typical expedition might have between 24 and 36 people on it, uh, usually led by experienced investigators like myself. Uh, if you were interested, you can, it tells on there how you can apply. Uh, BFRO, then it, someone would interview you, talk with you about what to expect. Uh, the BFRO collects a fee because, you know, there are some expenses that go along with that. Sure. Um, there's a couple of release forms, an NDA, so non-disclosure agreement, because we really don't want to tell the media, et cetera, you know, where we are, what we're doing. That's kind of what that comes down to. Um, but you can learn about it and what to do. Uh, and we go out and put ourselves in, you know, in places. Uh, sometimes it's remote, uh, you know, primitive camping. Sometimes we'll use a base camp, a campground that has facilities. But then, you know, we're out in the woods scouting in the day and we're out in the woods till all hours at night, you know, remotely trying to you know, maybe interact with these things or get some experiences. So uh, that's kind of where it goes. But um, if someone was to go and are interested and they get through kind of an interview and discussion, we talk to them. There's a whole manual that tells you about equipment to bring and what to expect, et cetera, et cetera. On an expedition, we scout during the day, we're out at night. We have, you know, we bring in speakers to talk about different topics on it. So it's, people say, what's it like? And I always say it's, you know, sort of, you know, between a field trip and, um, you know, maybe military deployment in some ways. We have a lot of fun to meet some great people, though. And uh, we always want to keep people out of any kind of danger, et cetera. So it's it's not a big thrill-seeking thing. It's more of a studious thing as we go out. That's kind of what to expect. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rick. And I'll talk to you soon. All right, Jerry. Enjoyed it. Thanks for the time. All right, brother. All right. All right, guys, that wraps it up this week for us. So we, uh, we appreciate everything you do. And, and thank you for all of your support. You're exactly right. I know we can't say it enough. I would feel like we're just beyond so blessed and our hearts are so full all the time with you guys. And just know we love you and appreciate everything you do for us. Absolutely.
All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Y'all have a blessed week.